Thanks for joining us for the Long Island Sound Podcast. Each week we explore new music and dive deeper with the artists and their stories behind the music. Please subscribe and rate and review us wherever you stream this podcast. Here's your host, Steve Yusko. Hey, this is what you can expect. In today's special episode, I have a guest host hosting the program, a really wonderful guy. More importantly, he brought a fantastic guest. And this is a man who is extremely successful, who supports live music here on Long Island and building community. He has a phenomenal backstory, and I think you're going to find it really interesting. Check it out. You know, I've been thinking we've got a wellspring of talent here on Long Island. I am truly amazed at everyone that I meet here on the Long Island Sound. But where would we be without the venues that support live music and original live music? I have a special guest host. He's been on the podcast as a guest before. He's a producer, a drummer extraordinaire. His name is Chris Marshak. He has a very special guest here today. I'm going to leave that a mystery as I turn over the microphone to a really wonderful guy. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Good to have you here. Oh, thank you, Steve. So good to be here. This is my maiden voyage as a podcast host. Um, But I can tell you this, I'm someone who is extremely interested in the process of things. Uh, I think both in music and in life. Uh, When people have an idea, whether it's a musical one, or an entrepreneurial one, and taking that idea and having the courage to actualize it. That's something I connect with that interests me. And inevitably, there are always obstacles to overcome, and failure is always a part of the process. And, you know, People see an end product or a business, and they can mistakenly assume that it came out of the womb that way, not realizing the painstaking process that was involved. Uh, I like looking at success stories and tracing them back to their inception. And speaking of success stories, today I'm going to talk to Mark Burford. Mark is a founder and brewmaster emeritus of the Blue Point Brewing Company. Blue Point Brewery was the first microbrewery on Long Island. It was established in 1998 in a shipyard on River Avenue in Patchogue, New York. Prior to that, Mark was an avid home brewer. After growing the brand for 16 years, Blue Point was sold to Anheuser-Busch for nearly $20 million in 2014, reportedly. Mark's success has been well-documented. He has been interviewed by Forbes magazine, the New York Times, Bloomberg, Newsday, as well as many other media outlets and publications. Mark is one of the most respected brewmasters in the world. Recently, in 2023, Anheuser-Busch sold Blue Point Brewing to Tilray Brands as part of a huge deal that included eight beer and beverage brands. All of this is very impressive, and we could easily devote the entire podcast to it. That being said, what I'd like to focus on today is something a little different. Mark's love of music and his advocacy for the Long Island music community. Welcome to the Long Island Sound Podcast, Mark. Well, thank you very much. I'm very much looking forward to the discussion. Oh, good. We're glad to have you here. Now, from Blue Point's inception, Music has always been a huge part of the Blue Point community. And as you guys have grown, so has the stage you have given to musicians, both locally and nationally. How did the idea of like combining craft brewing with supporting local music come about? Where was the, the origin of that? Well, I, I think it really is uh, 
truthfully part of what we just wanted to do. It was really that was the the, the genius of it was just that it was we were the test subjects and we wanted to do what we wanted to do. And it was we found ourselves with a, a venue or a place that we could convince people where it was a venue. I think that's a better way to put it. And it was a unique space. And a lot of things have to come together to, to make things happen. And the, the music that we put on in the early days at River Avenue inside the brewery before we had filled the building up with the brewing equipment, you know, those kind of things could never happen today because there are too many rules and regulations uh, and Patchog is in a much better place than it was back then. And one of the advantages of being in a town that's not at its best is they often overlook the, the finer points of regulation in order to let business thrive. And now Blue Point, we took advantage of that by having music inside the brewery and so forth. And it created a very unique atmosphere and a unique venue for both the, the uh the people who played there, the artists, and and the people that came for the shows. But really, it was part of a lifestyle, right? The whole thing, the beer and the music was part of our lifestyle. I traveled around and followed bands, and, you know, that it was a lot easier to bring the bands to us than go after them after a while. So, but uh, also showcasing original music was a big piece of what we really wanted to do, because that's that's the hard piece on the, on the venue side. And creating the trust with our consumer that no matter what we put on, they were going to come and see it because they knew we had had at least some modicum of idea of what we were putting on. So it was never going to be pop star stuff. It was always going to be music where the players were central. And it, it, depending on the style, it could be bluegrass, it could be blues, it could be rock, it could be all kinds of things. Uh, it could be Turkish music at the Cast Fest. It could be very unusual things that we expose people to, but it was part of going on the journey with the beer and going on the journey with the music, you know, as, as we all know, that's, that's really where it started and where, how we got going. Yeah. And you mentioned original music and I think that's, you know, when we live in, where we live in Long Island, there's a ton of cover bands and it's certainly a, a, a uh, that seems to be the most uh, popular form of entertainment for a lot of folks. But you guys have always been aligned with original music. And that's something that, that I've always noticed and I, I think is beautiful, quite frankly. Um, do you think in terms of you creating your own beer, let's just say most people go to the store and they buy a beer that's already made. You made an original beer if you compare it to music, you know. Do you think your vision of creating an original beer and also being an advocate of people creating original music are in any way connected. Well, I think it can't not be right in a way. It's, it's that, it's that sort of uh, that intellectual curiosity journey. Right. And so you always want it to be something new. Now I understand this cover bands and that's, and that's a valid way to, to exist and so forth, but it wasn't, it wasn't uh, pertinent to us. Right. It was, it was, the original music was what was pertinent to your point. We were we were creators. And so for that, we we appreciate creators. And that it was almost that those moments with original music when you're exposing people to it and or you know people coming for something they know, that's that to me is the connection and, and the magical thing that we were trying to do was that that piece of it. And that was the part that wasn't as readily available on Long Island at the time. And still, you know, it still has its struggles and moments to get seen 
And I think that's where we were bringing something different, right? And in reality, it was a point of differentiation for us to be able to put that on. So I think to your point, I think, yeah, I think that was all part of our, our sort of psyche. And so it ended up being the way it was. But it's, I, I would much rather do that any day than, you know, uh, put on a cover band, which, like I said, is fine and everything. And we, when we occasionally we do that, too, every once in a while. But in general, it's, it, that's not the point. Right, which, which, you know, and again, being a musician myself, people making a living, you know, people have to make a living. But the, the places that actually support original music are, they've certainly dwindled as, as I seem to get older. And to me, what, you're, what you've created and what Blue Point's created is really an oasis to, to me. It's a rare thing. Uh, I, I had seen a previous interview of you from a while back, and you talked about going around in your station wagon, you know, before craft beers were accepted by everybody and you kind of had to sell it to people. And then eventually, you know, it became on the map and, and uh, you know, places had to know about it because it was coming from the customers were asking about it. So, but your initial, the way you described it, I think to me is similar to a lot of bands or artists when nobody knows about them, trying to get people to listen to their music, which is, and especially if it's a little different, you know, so I think that, you know, your connection, your support of that and, and the original, the originalness of you creating uh, this brand, I think to me, uh, it was something I had always noticed, you know. And so I, I know the local muni music community, especially the musicians I play with, are very grateful for the haven you've created for folks there. So you, you should know that. Um, the other thing which I want, as far as the music schedule at Blue Point, for people listening, you guys have a pretty extensive live music thing going on there. Could you tell folks a little bit about like, I know you have special events, which we could talk about, but like a, like a typical week, what's the, the live music scene like at Blue Point? Like, you know, how many nights a week do you have music and, you know? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. So it, in the, uh, the place as it exists today, the, there's, there's weekly live music Thursday to Sunday. Uh, always check the schedule because there's, there's, there's chances that it, uh, there's changes or special events and stuff. But basically we have, uh, usually a couple of bands and a couple of solo artists play each week, right? So think Thursday night, the slower nights is going to be solo artists and Friday, Saturday bands. Now DJs and bands come in and different kinds of, kinds of acts, but, uh, that, that's week in, week out. And Michelle Wilkins, who runs the, the pub there is the, uh, sort of the director of that and, and, and deals with a lot of that on the day-to-day -day business, on the day-to-day -day, uh, action. And we appreciate her for that. And she she's also somebody that has a love for the music as well. And so that, to me, it's in great hands for her. I, I never in one iota would I think about, you yeah. know, sort of editing her, 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 her deal, but, uh, yeah, it's there and it's there and it's there all the time. And one of the interesting things is people that show up to the brewery that don't know that, but want to come to the brewery for whatever reason, the beer or whatnot, and then they get to see the live music. And a lot of times all of a sudden there, you see them staying and then instead of going home, they're there. And it, it, it's, it's always something that we're exposing people to. And the brewery has a couple different big spaces in it, whether it's outside in the beer garden or in the regular bar space that's not the live music room. So people can move around if they want to, but we see a lot of people get attracted to the live music when it's happening. Yeah, and there's a, the, the thing I notice about uh, the sense of community there, you know, um, 
bands uh, coming to see other bands and and just because of the i think you've created a community it's funny when i was talking to uh some folks about asking them who've known you for a while the one comparison that kept coming up was that a few people described you and blue point as, as similar to a reef you know that, that said that they, they said that you've created an ecosystem in the local community and just as a reef provides a habitat for various marine organisms, Blue Point has fostered a mutually beneficial environment where all all acts, all members of the community and businesses, and especially musicians, have benefited from your success. What are your thoughts on that comparison, as far as like uh, you know, a community and a reef, and and uh, any thoughts? I, I kind of like it because of uh, I do a lot of work with freshwater advocacy, so that sort of that sort of strikes that strikes home for me. But I think you, I think it's right in that. And that you can only, you know, we don't control the musicians, right? And we never, ever did and never asked them to act a certain way or play a certain way. Um, but, you know, creating the space for that all to happen is, that's a Long Island thing that's hard to do, right? In, in any geographical area where the real estate is challenging, expensive, you don't usually have the ability to have space and let bands play. Usually every square foot in the restaurant business has to be accounted for and, and generate X amount of income. We're lucky in our model that we built that we don't have to, we sort of do it a different way, right? And we're lucky that enough people come that allows us to flourish. But yeah, I think from the from the music and just all the community aspects that we do, whether it's, you know, um, a million different items. Well, it's doggy adoption to to Cash Fest tomorrow with 3,000 people in the parking lot, right? Very different types of events that couldn't be further apart, but they're all part of the ecosystem and they're all play a, a role. None of them are, are expendable in our minds. Right. And uh, it's funny, I, I also, in one of the early interviews, I heard someone ask you, this was, I don't know, maybe it was a while ago, asking you to pick your favorite venue or something in the patchwork community and you your answer was so like you know it wouldn't be fair for me to say and, and you, you were emphasizing community back then and you were you were a younger version of yourself and but it, it seemed very clear right it was so crystal clear in the way you were speaking how you valued community and i could tell you as a musician who's who's played with various bands and we've we've done some work together obviously that that's something that i think is you know, is to be commended because it's it's that community sometimes in the music business, it's a lot of individuals working, but there's not necessarily this cohesiveness. Now, I, I someone did mention uh, what what's Blue Point's role and your role in the um, Alive After Five. Tell, tell us about that, the evolution of that. Sure, that um, it certainly changed over the years. So in the beginning, you know, Patchogue was still in a, in a difficult place downtown. And I got together with... Uh, the person who was head of the Chamber of Commerce at the time. And we came up with this idea to sort of brainstorm this idea. And I've, I've seen it at other places around the country where they put the bands on Main Street mm -hmm. and all, you know, they might be a street fair, it might be some other thing. And we came up with this idea that uh, we could anchor the street with uh, one end of the Main Street where the Brick House Brewery was, and then we would be the mobile end of the other end where the, where the bank is, where, um, uh, it's now yeah. Capital One, used to be Norfolk. And so we would build a stage down there, and, and they would let people flow on Main Street back and forth. And it would, you know, it was, the idea was to bring people to town to show, to expose Patchogue and to, and to enjoy live music on both sides of the town. 
So we did it. And back in the early days, we used to do it every other week. So there was 10 or 12 in the summertime that we did. And we, you know, we'd hire, we'd get a bouncy house so that the kids could go in there and the parents would stand around and have beers and, you know, listen to the live music. But the people could walk back and forth on the street freely back then, slightly different than as it became a massive success and 20,000 people started showing up. Then you got to pen people off and, you know, there's all the issues that, 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 uh, that happen when you have crowds of that size. And so it be, has become a, a fantastic uh, success story for Patchog. They do it four times a year now. And we, we because we are now located right in the village, we more or less play a sponsorship role now as opposed to being architects of it and, and really, really part and parcel of well, it for many years. It's such a it's such a great thing. And when someone told me that I had I kind of came to the local scene a little bit later than some folks. So learning about that, uh, I wasn't surprised by it, but it was something good to know. Tell me about your musical, your earliest musical influences, because you're such a music fan. You know, I know we've had some conversations just uh, even recently, and you could just tell your enthusiasm uh, exudes when you're talking about music. So, yeah, tell some folks, like, where did the music bug for you start? Was there any particular artists or movement that went on that uh, got you excited about it? Sure. I mean, I grew up in a house of not, of not musicians, but, you know, we had a record player and we had some Beatles records and we listened to that. And my older brother, you know, listened to, to rock and roll. And I listened to a lot of that growing up. But I think, uh, to be honest, other than the natural attraction to it, I think that when I started to see live shows is when it really kicked in for me. And back in, you know, the 70s, the the sort of the temple of rock and roll worship was Madison Square Garden back then with all the big bands that we all know, you know whether it's, you know, Zeppelin, Floyd and, and Death Row Tall and Queen and, you know, it's Black Sabbath and it goes on forever. I saw a show at the Garden once with Van Halen open for Black Sabbath before anybody knew who really? Van Halen was. So that was rock and roll, you know. And so, it, you know, as a, as a teenager, it's hard, you know, you see Van Halen open for Black Sabbath, you can't be help but be impressed by what's going on there, you know. That's an amazing moment. But uh, one of the things that really struck me, a couple of shows really struck me, right? I, I think my first show was Kiss at Nassau Coliseum, right? And so I was a kid and it, it was, you know, it was fire and brimstone and rock and roll and simplicity and the whole thing. You know, very exciting. And then my next show, uh, 1977, I saw Pink Floyd at the Garden, right? And so the things had, that was, you know, the, the polar opposite of what I had just seen. And that I just said, well, there's something going on here in this in this world I have to know about. And then, uh, you know, after seeing all the bands that you can you name all the big bands, um, I did see got to see the Grateful Dead a few times. And that struck me as something that was uh, that really struck me, put it that way. And then I used to and by doing that sort of research, one of the things I'd always done, you know, junior high school and high school, I was always the guy that got on the train and went to the garden and skipped out of school and got the tickets from my friends. And I was the person that would buy a, you know, a 62 blues record and say, Hey, this lick is, you know, Jimi Hendrix. I mean, uh, Jimmy Page uses this lick, you know, five <laughs> years later. And I would play that for my friends to, you know, varying degrees of interest on their part. But that's that kind of thing. Always. I, I was just into that for whatever reason. So the historical context of where all the bands came from, I, for some reason, that interests me, and I always liked listening to the older music to see the see the evolution and the path that it took to get to each place. 
And the Grateful Dead is one of those bands that has so many splinters and ways that uh, that you can go when you research every all the different interests that the band come from. That it, it's a it's a really vast and interesting world to get lost in. And so those that sort of coming out of the '70s with all of that was sort of I think uh, gave me enough fodder to just go on and 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 the ability to go follow anything down the line. Right? There was the live music wasn't just rock and roll; it was everything. And whether I'm going to see Miles Davis or I'm going to see somebody else, it was always that interest that there's going to be more here. There's going to be the excitement of the moment, right? The show, the excitement of the moment. But it also, it moves me, I'll be honest. It's my church, per personally. You know, people don't want to offend anybody, but it's my church. And it's, where, it's what I get, where I Amen. connect spiritually some other way. And so, but for me, it, it, you know, it'll never end. It's, it's a journey forever. And I'm glad I'm on it. Excellent. All right. On that note, we're going to just take a short pause here. We'll be right back with the Long Island Sound Podcast. Are you ready for the ultimate podcasting adventure? The Long Island Sound Podcast offers you not one, but two ways to engage with our captivating content. Tune in to our audio podcast on your favorite platform and let your imagination paint vivid pictures of Long Island stories. Or if you're craving a visual feast, Catch our video podcast on Spotify and on the Long Island Sound YouTube channel. Double the options, double the excitement. Mark, you mentioned the Grateful Dead. Um, and one of the, in preparing for a talk at you today, I talked to a few folks. And there was a rumor that, that, that someone told me that you owned every bootleg of the Grateful Dead that they had ever re released up until a certain point. And that you had a you have a special listening room in your home, or it did at one point. Is there any truth to this? Any anything that gets passion can verge on fanaticism. You know, there's <laughs> it's a fine line. And uh, perhaps I didn't have everything, but um, certainly plenty. And yeah, we, we, there's there's a the music listening room has changed over the years, but in, and it's gotten more digital in the modern age. Uh, and that's an, that's an interesting thing because it's so easy to get to get stuff now but yeah that was it was you know i followed him around saw i saw them all over the country you know i used to scuba dive with jerry garcia in hawaii when i lived out that way and you know so it was a lot of a lot of connection right and it was fun to meet them all and just see you know how hu to humanize the whole thing because when you see people on a big stage and stuff that you read in the press, especially a long time ago, where it was really hard to get information. You know, there were a few uh, music magazines, a few, you know, you read the liner notes a thousand times on the albums you got. And but it was it was hard to really understand. And so when, when you started meeting people, I was like, you know, this this is the human part of it. Right. These people have to travel around, get up yeah. in the morning and go to another hotel and play and come out on stage and you want them to be their best at that moment. You've spent your money, you're showing up. You want them to be their best at every time. And that's hard. That is hard for human beings to do. I, I, I give anybody who travels around and doesn't act, I give them a lot of credit you, to, to pull it together and get out there and do that at night after night, irregardless of what's going on in your life or whatever heck might've happened. I, you know, and so with meeting all the guys and, you know, they're all different characters. It was, uh, it was great. Cause I, I, felt like I appreciated them enough that I didn't hadn't wasted all my time liking these guys. You know what I mean? If yeah. you meet them, you know, there's that thing, don't ever meet your heroes. I was just like, if I met them and they were real assholes, I would have been like, oh man, what the hell am I doing? But not ask about what it was like to uh, go scuba diving with Jerry Garcia. Yeah, it was a trip. I'll be very honest. We had a, 
we had a I was living in in uh, Hawaii and I had a we had a mutual friend who well it's it's a good story the, the story of how we met is a good one we, uh, so on the big island of Hawaii that Terry had done some scuba diving and I had a mutual friend who was the guy who did the anchor for the NBC News and so the Hawaii is such a small market that the anchors actually go out there and do newscast. So uh, my buddy was over on the Big Island, and he was he was at a land use meeting, which is about the most boring thing in the world. You know, it's just a, a at Kona High School, and it's just this real, you know, they're just dealing with whatever local items they had to do. But um, one of the things on the agenda, and he was a, one of the things on the agenda was they had these. The, there was so much interest in the reef diving that the boats were throwing over their anchors and busting up the reef. So they wanted to drill these pins in because the water's crystal clear and you put loops and the people could dive down and hook their boats on and try to save the reef. And so there's, you know, a bunch of local Hawaiian guys up on the dais and there's folding chairs and my buddy's asleep in the back with the cameraman. And all of a sudden they say, does anybody have any idea how we could pay for this? And the arm goes up and it's fucking Jerry, right? So (laughs) the guy calls on him. Now the guy in the dais doesn't know who he is and he calls on him and Jerry says, you know, I have a band over the mainland and we could come over and play and, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll uh, give the money and it should pay for the whole thing. And the guy says to Jerry, sir, do you really think anybody's going to come? And Jerry says, uh, I'm pretty sure they'll show up, you know. <laughs> so, and so my friend, of course, jumps out of his seat, is like, holy shit. And um, he interviews him. Right. So, I, you know, this is before cell phone, so he can't call me at that moment. So I tune in, you know, six o'clock news, see what my buddy's up to. And it says Jerry Garcia Torres, and my buddy's talking to him, right? So at that time, the only way we sort of communicated out of, uh, I think it was out of Stanford, there was a dead intranet. So I could get on in the 80s and sort of send emails to people. You had to pay, right? It wasn't cheap, but we could do it. So I'm like on the internet sending them messages, you know, what the hell's going on? And, you know, gets back, he gets, get on a plane, you know, because it's only a 20-minute flight. He goes, come over tomorrow. And I'm like, I'm there. So we flew over, and uh, literally we drove up to the dive boat, and Jerry's on there with some people. And he was just, you know, doing that, just sort of casually scuba diving. And, of course, the word got out, and there's everybody's in tie-dye on the boat and stuff. Uh, but he couldn't have been more gracious. And uh, spent some time, talked to him, wow. so, uh, some environmental stuff, and then uh, – there are some videos out there, I think, on the Garcia Band website of that that action. There's a picture of me standing next to Jerry on that website, and uh, a, a younger version of myself. And uh, and so it was, you know, it was a, a fun time. And wow. you know, they, they all came over. Wasserman and Weir came and played at the Kauai Dome, the dome over there in Kauai, and we hung out on the beach with him and Taj Mahal till dawn. And there was all kinds. It was a real casual scene over there. So uh, anything that was fun like that that happened, we could get connected into it. Are there any like memorable collaborations between you and any local artists? You know, one of the things about having larger uh, bands is that the that gives a bigger stage to the local bands that play before them, right? And so a lot of people always ask me, why are you trying to, why are we booking these bigger bands and why are you doing this stuff? And part of it is, hey, we want to, it's in our DNA to make the party larger. That's just part of what we do, <laughs> beer business. But it also yeah. gives, you know, I'd like to see the, the, the local bands on the big stage with the big sound and the, the professional, the professional uh, stuff that goes on and give, you know, giving 
younger people, younger bands, that opportunity is also is also something I find enjoyable, right? And seeing people get up there for the first time with a real PA and real sound equipment, and you're just like, wow. You can always see that in their faces, like, oh my gosh. Because it's not easy to do. It's not something that musicians get to do on a regular basis, right? You play where you play. And so that 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 aspect of it, sort of that that's a collaboration in its own way, right? It's sort of just trying to build it bigger so that you bring from the bottom up, you bring them also. It's not just the headliner bill that that's yeah. part of the project. The rest of it matters to me just as much. Uh, what a be what a beautiful thing that is. Um, and as far as the the, I think we're going to put the links to the live schedule uh, in the podcast, oh, sure. so folks who want to know. Um, what's happening and want to see some of the bands maybe we're talking about or or if they're enticed to learn more about what you guys got going going on over there it'll all be in the, uh in the description um switching gears a little bit so in 2014 right uh blue point was sold to anheuser-busch in bev right uh and certainly at that point you know i think you know the idea of a corporate mentality taking over it would not have been surprising at all if a lot of this Blue Point support for local music, the, the local music scene and community might have been lost in that transition. And I know you you have an active role in there. How did you manage to not let that happen with the corporate entity? And we're all very aware of how corporations work. And, and sometimes, you know, you have somebody who is not in the community looking at an expenditure on a spreadsheet. And what is this for? You know, and questioning what I would imagine. How did you manage to not let that happen? I'm very well, you curious can't, about you that. You can't show them the spreadsheets. I mean, that's the first. <laughs> that's the first step. But uh, no, in, in all seriousness, there was there was a lot more autonomy at Blue Point and has been, you know, for the for the ten years of the ABI uh, time frame. There was a lot more aut autonomy than people would think, and I, and I think that's ultimately what the the answer is is that we controlled our own destiny a lot more. We had to work within the system for you know on the business side of things, on the beer business side of things. But they weren't there wasn't anybody to tell us not to do anything. We controlled our sort of our budgeting and our and our marketing stuff and everything that we were we did always did. And that was a big focus for them was just keep doing what you're doing. They, they didn't really want it to stop what we were doing. They wanted to amplify what we were doing. And that is, you know, that's that's not a complicated thing. But people, you know, the idea of a big company, there's a lot of negative connotation with that. And I'm not a big company apologist, trust me, the, the wars I had in the last 10 years, I, they go on forever. But as far as the music came, they, 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 that was something we did and they knew they weren't experts at. The only, you know, when you, when you look at a company like the Anheuser Bush, they book bands like Bud Light things that are just gigantic events across the country and they use outside agencies and figure that all out. They're not doing that because they're only, they're doing that to sell beer and, and somebody told them that this is a popular act and they went and did it. Then it's a different kind of level of endorsement. Whereas we're doing it for, as a, as a, for all the reasons we've previously discussed. And that's, they, they, they that's so far out of their sphere that they didn't, they, they, you know, there wasn't anybody to tell us not to, I think is one of the, when it really comes down to. Right. So similar to when blue point first started out, you, 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 you mentioned town of Patchogue not really knowing what's going on. No one told you not to do something. So it was a certain freedom. And, and this is maybe a different version of that. The whole concept of asking forgiveness instead of permission has been a, a thread through Blue Point forever. And when you, when, you're, when you manufacture alcohol and, and, 
and, and throw parties like we, we throw, there's always going to be, well, you know, slight collateral damage. I mean, you try to do the best you can, but things happen in, in live performances and music and, and noise and crowds. And, and as much as we tried to always create an atmosphere that was friendly and trouble-free, you know, every once in a while something happens. And so you have to deal with it and you just have to be able to to manage your way through that with whoever might be in charge, whether it was the municipality or the or the company or whoever else. We had a lot of a, a lifetime of trying to to work that out and a lifetime of experience of, of of asking forgiveness. And so I think that's played well with my with my experience with the big companies. Right. Well, that that leads me to my next question, which is now being that Blue Point was just sold to Tilray, right? I imagine things were in a bit of a transitional state at the moment. You know, um, any idea on what you know what you just mentioned? We think it'll still continue. Will there still be that autonomy you'll have, or and you know, any thoughts on that? Or do you have any indication of that at this point, or is that still unfolding? I would say, to be honest, I think it's still unfolding. I mean, one of the things that, uh, as far as this podcast goes, we have an event we do uh, 420, April 20th every year, and we have bands at those events. And, um, you know, we, this, you have to sort of get that all set September, October for the, because the bands book up, uh, bigger bands. And so that was right at transition time for the company. So we weren't able to do our normal thing, but there, they're known, they own a brand called Sweetwater Brewing down in Atlanta, and they, they do huge shows. I mean, huge shows down there. And uh, so they're, they're very much um, in touch with what the live music thing is. And they're, I mean, their direction to us once the dust settled was, you know, go bigger and, and more often. So that's, oh. uh, we're, tr we're trying to work through all that now and what that really means. And uh, so we're looking forward to sort of, you know, the term bringing it to the next level is a little overused, but sort of getting the most out of out of our space there that we can. So that's, you know, things are pointing towards live music. So we'll, we'll hope for the best. Yeah. Well, with you at the helm, I'm sure you'll be an advocate for it, which, you know, as far as your own role, though, moving forward, do you have any idea? Will your role be similar, do you think, uh, to what it's been? Oh. Yeah, yeah. In transition is, the, is really it. I, it it's it's. It's, it was a big thing that they did when they, they tripled the size of their business by buying those brands from Anheuser-Busch. So they're really, it's only been a few weeks, so they're really just trying to figure out who and what they have. And so, and we're still getting to know people. It's, it's, it's too early. I mean, it, it, yeah. they, they may uh, be sick of me or may not buy into my act, but that's, that's their right. That's their prerogative, or they may, or they may. So time will tell. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I, I think, right. But one thing's clear that what, your role from the beginning to where it is in, in the community, uh, I would think that um, that has to register a little bit on the meter, certainly. My experience with you and the people I talk to about you, you just have uh, cultivated a, a, a just a positive when people see you. And I think you walk into a room, I think it's it affects people in a positive way. So I would imagine that you know, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if your role continues, but I, I can understand in the world we live in, you just don't know one day at a time, I guess. Yeah. Um, right now it's one day at a time. And that's kind of you to say that we'll see what tomorrow brings, but at this point in my life, I'm not going to, you know, 
I'm not looking to just, you know, sort of answer to somebody just for the sake of, of doing it. Those that that's, I'm, I'm fortunate that I can say that and, and mean it because those days are behind me. If they don't like the way I do things or the way the, the things I want to emphasize or, you know, on the beer side, create the things I want to create and want to show them why I'm doing different things. If that's not in their plan, then that's not in their plan. And, you know, off off to the next venture is the way or adventure really at this point. As I mentioned earlier, one thing I like is like tracing things back to the the inception of uh, of things. Uh, and I think people see a successful business and oftentimes don't realize, you know, the, the challenges that were faced early on. And it was funny. I, I did watch an old interview of you. And in the interview, you said, we basically emptied our bank accounts, mortgaged our houses and jumped off a cliff. And so far, we haven't hit the bottom yet. You know, and I think tying it back to musicians, I think if you're a musician, there's this vulnerability, you know, you're putting it all out there and there's you just you're investing in money and gear and, and records. Is anyone going to listen to me? It requires a certain level of, you know, you mentioned music being your church, you know, a certain level of faith, whatever that faith might be. Mm -hmm. um, and in that process, can you think of a significant challenge you encountered in your process and how um, how you overcame it, you know? Sure. I mean, the, the um, one of the big pieces of what we did, you know, we're, we're trying to brew beer, right? So we're in, in, in one aspect, we're manufacturers, right? I mean, that's, we're basically beer manufacturers, we're brewing. And, and what happens if you sell, in the simplest terms, if you sell some beer, you got to make more. And if you sell more than you can make, then you have to buy more equipment to make more beer, to sell more beer. And you end up in this this sort of uh, search for capital situation where it's always you're growing, but you're like, oh, we need more. Every time we sell sell beer, we need to buy more equipment, and and that that that's a very hard um, uh, dynamic to get out of when you're a small manufacturer because it's if, if you as you go along, every penny that you're bootstrapping has to go back to the business, and and I, I see that with musicians all the time. I mean, I, all the time do I see the exact same thing happen. And I try to tell them to hang in there. And there's, you know, that that if there is no magic answer unless you create enough capital to get out of that, where you, you built a place like we have in Patchogue or whatnot, and you get out of that sort of stair step thing where you sell more, you got to buy more equipment. And that that's that's a sort of a quandary of small manufacturing. And that that trying to to get our way through that, uh, if you think about the early 2000s, we had had sort of maxed out the capacity in our in the River Avenue location, and we were trying to figure out next steps. And one of the things we did in the interim was we had beer made at other breweries for us. It's called contract brewing, right? It's done in every business, and um, we started doing that because it was easier and and faster, and the quality was good for us to do that. Uh, have beer made at uh, larger facilities that had better equipment than we did so the the quality of the beer was spot on then it would have been for us to rent another place in long island and grow the grow the facility or move those things on long island with manufacturing extraordinarily difficult more difficult and i was looking at the brands that we were competing with and they're all in fairly rural spots and they can just put up another building if they want we had a lot of challenges on Long Island that, that you don't see other places. 
And so we did that. We went that contract brewing route where we brought in bottles uh, from other places. And that allowed us to grow rapidly because I could get the volume to the wholesalers. I could get the beer where it was requested by the customers. And we didn't have to build the brewery every step of the way to get there. And that was, at the time, not as popular a avenue to take in our business. But it was an avenue I felt we had to, we had to do because we weren't going to be able to deal with the real estate and we didn't have that kind of cash. We just weren't, we weren't funded in any way. We were just, you know, trying to figure it out as we went. So that, that sort of, you know, decision to, to utilize contract brewing and, and you have to give up a little control, but you, you able to grow your business much more rapidly. And I think that that's one of those, that's one answer to how we got rolling uh, in the early 2000s so quickly. Right. And speaking of beer, I do have one beer question, because I guess what prompted me to ask you to to interview you today was uh, it was we were playing. I think it was with the Falco brothers backstage Mm -hmm. and you were kind of holding court. You know, when someone asked you a question, they said, you know, like, how does a brand, you know, like Blue Point or Heineken keep a consistency of taste in their product over years and years, being that, uh, you know, it's not like Coca-Cola where it's made by these like uh, chemicals or, 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 or some like easily re- repeated things you're dealing with natural things that have seasons and 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 uh natural ingredients so i i know someone asked you that and i was fascinated so maybe you could tell some of the folks listening at home and, and maybe in your own words like how do they how do the you know brands keep this consistency of brand you know of taste for years and years and years with a product yeah it's um i think one of the things that uh is lost in translation off often when we talk about beer is the fact that beer is at its heart uh, an agricultural product. And I, and I think that that's, if people understood that more, they might even have more respect for it. But uh, so things like barley and hops, hops, barley is the body of, and sweetness of the beer, hops being the spice of the beer, those things are all grown and they have to, and the challenges, the agricultural challenges are tremendous that, uh, these these products get under because you you're asking somebody to grow something that doesn't change that's properties doesn't change at because you want it to be the same every year and as science evolves we find that uh, that's that's helped a lot now, I'll give an example a funny example like uh, hops are grown um, in the 49 along the 49th parallel in North America right uh, right on in Washington Yakima Valley all go across the country. And then when you go around the world in Michigan, New York, and when you go into England and Germany, these are, those are all hop growing regions. And that's why those are beer drinking countries. And so when I, we were, when uh, first started with Anheuser Bush, I was put on this hop uh, traveling team and we went around the world and we, you know, we tried to find different hops that were growing that we could bring back to America and use. Right. And so on one of these trips, I'm in South Africa and we're we're looking at the hop fields in South Africa, and one of the challenges is that the the South Africa is so close to the Arctic, this you know the the South Pole that there's only eight hours of growing light in the day instead of twelve like we get up here. And so since the 70s, they've been training these plants to grow in eight hours, and for that they have different characteristics and different flavors. And so when you're trying to match all of these things, right, different growing regions, different political climate. When we, when I look at the sophisticated hop fields in North America, you know, I stand there at Elk Mountain, which is you know that little piece of Idaho that that touches Canada. It's 10 miles from it. Beautiful place. 
you know, there's they have drones with infrared light that look at the plants because you can see the disease before the naked eye. And the, the grounds all have sensors for different pests and, and for obviously for moisture. And then we go down there and it's a whole different story, right? Those those fields are they're 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 growing hops, but they're in uh, they're not using that kind of technology and they're not using that kind of repeatability. And there's instead of machinery harvesting, it's people in pickup trucks and machetes. And you just have this whole different view of it. And you're saying, wow, when you think what we what we do when we're used to the farming side of it, they we have to teach these people and have to bring them on to that that side. And so all of that, all of those changes, you don't want to affect the beer at the end of the day. Right. You want the beer to be the same. And so the brewers, that, that's at the end of the day, that's one of the biggest thing brewers have to do is evaluate the raw material and those the, the plants and the barley. And there's lots of options, hundreds of hundreds of hops. There's lots of there's not as many barley options, but they're certainly there. And they change when you when you you think about barley is harvested once a year, just like most things. And it has to wait till the next year. So that barley you're brewing with in August got harvested in September of October the previous year. And so you have to hope that it's, it lasts well and it still has its characteristics as if it was just harvested fresh. And there's a lot of technology that goes into that, but it's it still changes. And, it, and there, there's, there's technical reports you get on each batch of raw materials so that you know the brewer can make adjustments. But ultimately, Mother Nature's in control of these things, and you have to be able to to understand that, and you have to to know. I mean, one of the interesting things in hops is a bunch of different types. Cascade is one of the best known ones. They're finding now that different hop plants are more similar that are grown next to each other than the same ones that are grown in different locations, right? So it's more about the ground and the, the conditions than it necessarily is even about the hops type. So the ones with different names end up being more similar because they're grown in the same conditions. S similar to what wine and terroir is, that whole concept mm -hmm. is coming to, 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 to beer raw materials now, right? So I find that absolutely fascinating. I think that we have this chance to develop a real, um, a real respect for the agricultural side of the business as, as people get used to that. But that was never it. You bought one. You bought the type of hops, whether it was grown one place or another. It was that wasn't the, the concern. And so as we learn more, like anything else, beer is a journey. The science changes. We learn more. Uh, I, I, lo I love the fact that the agricultural piece is, is so interesting. All right. I right, going to take another pause right here. We'll be right back with the Long Island Sound podcast. The Long Island Sound is here to help you connect with local artists. Follow us on Instagram for the latest up-to-date podcast episodes and also to connect with your local artists and their upcoming shows. Welcome back to the Long Island Sound podcast. Um, so, Mark, what's next for you, like as far as your own legacy, you know? What, you know, what do you hope to, you know, leave behind, you know, both professionally and personally? You know, what would you, you know? Uh, all right. The, uh, sounds like the end of the line here, but, uh, not quite. I got no. one more question, but I, <laughs> I, I, I just, I was thinking about all that you've accomplished and, 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 you know, again, the focus of most of what we talked about today is in regard to the your community aspect and, and the difference you've made in musicians lives. 
but I just, you know, uh, I think in my own life lately, I've been finding, you know, just like, you know, my own legacy. So I, I guess in friends of eyes, it's been a topic of conversation that's come up with some friends of mine. So I figured I'd throw it out there to you and you can answer it any way you want, you know, as far as, as that, but any thoughts on that? Okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, to be honest, I haven't, I haven't really thought that much about it, but uh, because to me, it's an endless journey that, that I'm on. The, the music and the beer journey is is something that even if I was to leave the Blue Point, for instance, um, you know, then then I'm in the sort of the mentor. There's a lot of small breweries that could use some help from somebody with experience or even just, you know, I'm not it doesn't have to be all that a professional relationship, but, you know, visiting and talking to people about beer and how to make things better. I, I don't I think what. When I leave behind, um, I, I really just want people to have had a good time with us and had a positive experience at Blue Point and a place where they felt comfortable, right? And I, I think that's one of the big things that we've always tried to to have at the location. And you know, on the beer side, I want everybody to say, "Hey, the beer was always good," right? I mean, that's that's as simple as that, right? They created, they they made stuff out of thin air. We we created things out of thin air, and we made stuff that was good, and we we. We were professional in our production side, so that it, we we made good beer. But on the and, but on the sort of the the music and the venue side and the and the the bar, I really wanted to be. That's what the the whole thing is about being being comfortable. The world's you know the world's a tough place. It's a stressful place. Crazy shit goes on. When you show up at Blue Point, that stuff's not on the table. Or our job is to take you away from that. And as much as we can, and our job is to be happy and smiling every time you show up. I mean, we got, you know, stuff in our lives too, everybody, but you, you show up at our place and, you know, like I tell people, if, if, it, if you don't have a good time at Blue Point, it's not our fault. That's, that's my goal, right? My <laughs> goal is that you show up and if something goes wrong. You're not having a good time. Everybody has stuff in their life. I don't want it to be our fault, right? And that's, that. it's just not that complicated, but it's the mm -hmm. respect for the customer, right? Make sure people have space. You're not pushing people out. You're not you're not rude to people. You know, don't be an asshole. It's just real simple rules, right? Be treated like you'd want to. Like we've all gone to venues and places where it was just hectic and too 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 busy and not or whatever. It didn't work out. I'm just saying the things that we control, we control them. And we just treat people the way you want to be treated. We all go to places. We're all in this lifestyle. So how? What's the best thing we saw? Let's just do it. And that's what that ultimately is what is right for folks, not not whatever rule you want to make, not anything. Just make people comfortable. They're here to get away from the, the stuff that you see on the news. That's not us. We don't even have TVs at the brewery. We never have. Right. And that's part of it. People right. always like, like, what? Why aren't this, the, the game isn't on? I'm like, no, nah, we're not that place. Right. But it's also keep you away from all the other stuff that's coming on the TV besides just the the momentary sports thing. And that's what we want people to do. It's a place where you talk to other place people, a place you listen to music, enjoy food and beer. That's that's what it really is. And that's part of that that what I want to leave behind. And part of that is that there is a way to do this without but with, with treating people better. And I think that is that's a big focus of what I think about. Yeah, I think you've achieved that, Mark. Um, um, you had mentioned uh, the idea of like helping a, a, a maybe an up and coming brewery that might need your needs your your expertise. You know, have you been involved in mentoring? Is that something you have aspirations to do? The idea of me mentoring somebody 
that maybe, uh, you know, even I, I saw maybe it was on uh, your Twitter account when I was doing some 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 research for this. It, there was a, you shared something about a, a a new brewery opening up on Long Island, and you welcome. You said welcome to the person, mm -hmm. and so obviously that's in your your nature, you know, and and, and giving back to the community is obviously as we've talked about extensively. Can you see yourself mentoring? Uh, I, I can easily. It's part of um, what craft beer was. So there's when I started <clears throat> 70s and 80s, there wasn't any schooling for craft beer and there wasn't any there wasn't any stuff in the libraries. Right. It was when they it's a little bit of a story, but when they reappealed prohibition in 1933, they left the word beer out of it. So it was illegal to make beer at home until 1978. Jimmy Carter changed that. Right. They, they had wine in there. You could always make wine at home. But the, what 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 happened because of that is there it was illegal. It was like contraband. So there were no books in the library. There was no there was no way to get information. Right. The brewmasters were all from overseas uh, universities. We didn't have any schooling in the U.S. And so there's this term that said that craft beer is the first successful open source endeavor by mankind. Right. So a lot of words. But that's that I lived that. Right. And so like in the early 80s, when I was out in California, you know, I'd be in San Diego. We were home brewing. The you know, craft beer thing was just starting. Say there was a dead show in Frisco. We would leave on Fridays and go up the coast and stop at every brewery. And I would, you know, lo and behold, we're talking to the brewers. And then next thing you know, we're in the back drinking beer and I'm sharing everything that I learned. They're sharing with them and you spend the whole day, sleep on somebody's floor, get up, get, get up and go do it, go north till you get up for the show and then turn around and come back and do the exact same thing. And so you got to meet everybody in the industry, but that was how information was exchanged, right? There was no other way to get it. And so that that sort of open source piece is in, is endemic to what I feel. So I'm, oh, we're always helping, always willing to help people. Uh, we have a very sophisticated brewing lab at Blue Point. People are willing to are welcome to give us samples, and we'll run them confidentially for you know for good or, or for ill. And just anything I can do for general help. That the the way I got into the business was sharing knowledge and having people share with me. And I'll certainly go out the same way. Yeah, that's that's really beautiful to hear that, and I can't help but think a lot of similarities between musicians sharing creative mm -hmm. ideas and and sleeping on couches and floors and things like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. One, one last question, Mark. You know, for any aspiring like entrepreneurs or artists listening to to this podcast today, might you have any words of inspiration or encouragement uh, that you'd like to share based on your experiences and journey with them? Uh, yeah, might be helpful. You got to stick to it, right? I mean, that's the end of the day. If you believe in it and you want to do it, it's you. You got to stick to it. There's just no, there's it. Nothing's easy, right? Everybody wants, you know. You see Taylor Swift on TV, and you think it's a piece of cake, but you know the the challenges that I've seen artists go through and musicians in particular. That, that, that those challenges are about as big as anybody I've seen in business do anything. And so, but if it's your passion. At the end of the day, you're, you're so much better off uh, following your passion than you are following somebody else's passion. And so that that I think is as simple as it is to me. That's how I look at it. Right. I'm like, if that's your passion, no matter how it works out at the end, it's not transactional. It's not about the end. It's about every day. And if you follow your passion every day, you have played the game. You're, you're doing it. That's what you're doing. There's nothing else. It does. If you, if there's more money at the bank in the bank at the end of the day, that's good for you. But 
that's not the that's not it. It being in it, following your passion is it. That's that's it. And so to me it is anyway, I'm sorry. But that's that's my sort of advice is as hard as it gets and as difficult as it is, just just follow your passion. On that note, Mark, I'd like to thank you for doing this podcast. And uh uh I think folks are gonna really enjoy listening to this. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and uh in this in this format and Thank you for being part of my maiden voyage of being a podcast ho host. So uh, uh, hopefully I did you well. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Chris, and appreciate it. Always appreciate seeing you and talking to you and spending time. Uh, this is this is wonderful because it's usually really loud when we're talking, but <laughs> but uh, this is this is a a, a nice uh, change from that. So uh, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure, and I really appreciate what you guys are doing with the podcast. Hey, that concludes our special episode with Mark Burford of Blue Point Brewery. And I want to say a special thanks to a really great guy, Chris Marshak, on his maiden voyage as a guest host on the Long Island Sound podcast. I'm so excited about the direction we're going in and the insights that we're getting, not only from the artists, but also from now a venue owner who has uh, been very successful and really supports live music, original music, and building community, because that's what we're all about here at the Long Island Sound. Okay, till next time, take care. Thank you for joining us today. I appreciate the time you spent with us. Please subscribe and comment and visit us at gigdestiny.com. Till next time, be generous with your joy, keep your spirits high, and let the music take you on a journey. Be well. Peace.